Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Live tweet, 
You can tweet before the show and help spread the word that way. During the show, if you tweet guest comments, that is fabulous and fantastic. After the show, of course, it helps continue to spread the word. Leave comments and rate and review the podcast because all of these interviews are also available through iTunes. Again, they're all free. You just go find Rex Sykes Movie Beat on iTunes and you can download one or over 200 incredible filmmaker interviews and discussions on filmmaking. So at any rate, please do share it. Please do uh, follow us. Find us on Facebook. Please leave comments. And now I'm going to bring on my guest, Mr. Jack Perez. Hey, man. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me back. Oh, it's always great to have you back. And we've had some really, really wonderful discussions. So uh, I'm thrilled, and I look forward to this one. We've got people in the chat room, and we are ready to uh, to learn more <laughs> and to explore more. Now, we uh, there's greetings from a movie angel from Germany. She says, hi, uh, Rex and Jack. And, and uh, John hello. Hopp is saying hello. There's other people hello, who are just guests. The Gaffer Girls are here. And, uh, Hello, they're Gaffer the ones, Girls. <laughs> they're the ones, they're, the ones, they're, they, they're so great. They, they, they're the ones who have found out how you leave comments uh, at the Blog Talk Radio site because no, none of us seems to know how to do that. But, but, and so I thank them. And then there are other people who are, who are apparently not subscribed to the, the, the website, so they come in just as guests. But we welcome all of you, and thank you for being here. So John has a question right off the bat, if you don't mind me asking that. We'll... Um, uh, no, not at all. Go ahead. Okay, he says, do you because some guy who kills people has a, a marvelously talented young uh, female actor in in the cast, and you also have uh, you know older. You've got Karen right. Black, Rosberg, and Kevin Corrigan, and and uh, Eric Price, and so many so many wonderful people. I didn't even mention. And um, uh, he asks, do you, do you find you know do you have, an, have do you have to approach directing kids and adults differently? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I, you know what? I think that most directors are actually equipped to direct kids really easily because most of us who direct are, are very much children <laughs> or just children that never grew up anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's um, I mean, there are plenty of people who like in the movie-making process to play you know, or any 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 theatrical, you know, whether you're an actor or behind the scenes, it is this very you know obvious play kind of thing, you know, make believe kind of thing. Obviously, it, it requires adult, um, there's a certain amount of maturity and preparation, all that stuff that adults do. But basically, you're a little kid fooling around uh, in a make believe world. So that that serves you well when you're directing a kid because a kid, a child actor is, you know, is still a child, um, and and so there's not a lot of intellectualizing when it goes into you know you don't talk a lot about um you know you don't you don't talk to a child actor like you would an adult in the sense that the child may not need to know too much you know for example you know for example Karen Black you know obviously a, a, an icon a seasoned powerful actor who's been doing doing this you know her whole adult life had very specific questions about her character, you know, uh, very specific things about her character's backstory, things that she needed to know from either myself or Ryan, the writer. Um, Ariel Gade, who plays um, Kevin Corrigan's young 12-year-old daughter, who was 12 at the time, when we, you know, um, you know, didn't have really any questions. She, She read the script and she seemed to digest, just get it, get the character. Um... 
it's weird because I, you know, one of my by my first sort of student film was an all child cast, and I, I don't know if that it really wasn't an accident so much as I, I was trying to make a movie about something I knew, and all I really could think about that was resonating at the time. It's funny, I'm just thinking about this now. Is uh, was bullying. You know, I was heavily bullied when I was a kid, so bullying and being bullied was probably the most dramatic thing, one of the most dramatic things in my life. So when when I was in film school and they said, look, make a film, write, write about what you know, do something about what you know, which I still think is great advice, that's what I ended up making a movie about, which was about a young kid, you know, in, in grade school who's tormented by a bully. Funny how, you know, now, you know, I'm in my mid-40s and my last movie is essentially about a guy who's tormented by bullies, you know, or at least having... Uh, plagued with nightmares about being tormented by bullies. But when I directed those kids then, um, it was very easy because I was still a kid myself. You know, I was still, you know, I was still, you know, whatever, 17 or um, 18, and um, and they were 11 or 12, and there's not that much distance there. You can you can relate, you know. Um, I should say something about Ariel Gade, though, who plays, like I said, who plays the daughter and some guy who kills people. She had been acting since she was six which doesn't sound like a long time, but if she was 12 and she was acting, so she's acting half her, half her life already. She had been in uh, the film Dark Water with Jennifer Connelly. She played her daughter. She was in Alien vs. Predator. Uh, she was in a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and she was probably the most adult. Funny enough, she was the most adult actor uh, of the entire cast, in a way, in the sense that she was... She was so so ridiculously prepared and so um, serious, and um, that's one of the things with when you're working with a child uh, actor is. And, and here's the other thing: this is the best thing about her is that she wasn't. I, I might have mentioned this before. She wasn't ruined by um, bad commercial training, which is what happens when stage parents want their. Oftentimes, when stage parents want their children to be stars, you know. Um, they put them, they try to get them commercial work, they have them go to acting school, they have them trained um, in a certain way, and you can tell, it's like all the kids you see in, you know, breakfast cereal commercials or toy commercials, they have this really big, broad, you know, in in my opinion, very unrealistic um, way of performing, because they've been taught, you know, that this is what you do, this is how you express joy, this is how how you act excited, and it's never real. So my fear when I'm casting, it's always when I'm casting kids, is that I'm going to see, and I often do, a lot of actors, child actors who have been trained, I think, wrong. So they're not very naturalistic. They're not very real, honest, which is what you're looking for in any casting, child or otherwise. And Ariel came into this audition, and she was like one of the few that really was completely natural, um, just completely down to earth and real, not forcing anything. It wasn't forced. You could tell that she just was being this character, which is a very difficult thing to teach, you know, how someone just to be, how to relax, how to connect. But she was that. And um, I, I took her aside once and I said, you know, how do you, how do you prepare? Do you go home and, and rehearse the scenes with your parents? And Which I assume that's what she did. I'm sure she's just like anybody. She, we run lines. You know, you're, you've, an actor, you're an actor, actually running through, you run lines either with your wife or friends. She said, no, she just, she just went up to her room and just kind of read it, read it over and over again and thought about it. 
So it was a very she got a very private sort of experience where she just sort of digested, made her decisions about how she was going to play the scene, came in and and did it. And um she was amazing. You know, she was, uh, did I bring this up this to come full circle about the bullies thing? There's a scene I may have mentioned this in a previous um, installment, but there's a scene in the movie and some guy who kills people where Ariel herself is in school and she's in a gym, you know, a basketball practice and she, she herself is bullied by these mean girls and, you know, they sort of rip the ball out of her hand and, and pull her, her ponytail and, and just, or just, you know, ugly to her. And it was the only time <clears throat> that Ariel broke character. In other words, she, as we were rehearsing it, mm-hmm. she started to laugh which was very much out of character for her. And I said, why are you laughing? And she turned to me and she goes, do people really treat each other like this? And I said, what do you, what do you mean? And she goes, well, I've been homeschooled. And I've never been, uh. I've never been in a public school or a school where you actually... Um, I was, and so she had never experienced firsthand what most of us experience, which is you know, being picked on or just dealing with that whole, that whole thing. So to her, it was like completely alien. And so that was the one thing that sort of threw her for a second. And of course, as I explained that I was like, so they beat the shit out of me every day. She's like, so, oh, okay, so I get it, all right. So, And she dropped right into it. But um, yeah, she was she was just uh, uh, a pro. And, um, you know, so I guess the the answer is that act, child actors are are just as varied as adult actors. You just want to find somebody who is really comfortable and not trying to become, you know, Macaulay Culkin or, you know, trying somebody who's like, I'm going to be an act. You know, like you don't, you need somebody who believes in the work. She did. You know, she uh-huh. she was like a little adult. So um, that was my experience with her. Uh so anyway, I don't know if that answers it, but hopefully some of it does. No, that's awesome. Um, we're going to talk more about acting and directing actors with Jack in, in uh, future installments. Uh, but for now, let me just ask this, because there are child labor laws. So yeah. the approach to how long you get to uh, work with the child versus how long you get to work with the adult, and this is true whether you're a union movie or a non-union movie. I mean... Um, there are still the laws of the land that people... So so can you address uh, the difference in, say, working with her for a shorter period of time on the set versus uh, working, you know, being able to work with the other actors for, you know, an entire day? Yeah, or? yeah, well, it's true. It's like you can't, you know... And I, it's funny because I try to do this with everybody. You know, there's a thing in, in the movie business whether, you know, particularly... Well, it doesn't seem to matter whether it's union or non-union or low-budget or big-budget. There's a, there's a thing about working your crew. People will work forever, you know, if they'll let them. If a producer will let the director, you know, keep shooting, usually he will. And you'll hear all the time that people work, you know, 14-hour, 18-hour, these ridiculously long days. And, of course, on a union show, there are there's overtime and all these ridiculous people get compensated. But still, in general, I think it's a bad... I think it's bad to do to do really long days um, because it you just there's nowhere to go. In other words, it's like when you don't sleep. You know, they say like if you if you if you have insomnia and you just go a number of days without sleep, it's not like if you get one good night's rest, you're all better. It's it's a cumulative thing. So if you work a crew and your actors for long long hours, I think you know it's going to come back to bite you in the ass because people just get run down, even if they're being paid. Um, so I've always tried to schedule 
uh, and this is the thing with with child actors, is that you just you try to schedule it in a way so you just get the work done in a reasonable amount of time. These last couple of movies, including Some Guy Who Kills People, have been like your standard 12-hour days. Um, and, and that's 12 hours from like the time you show up in the morning and eat breakfast to the time where everybody leaves. So... Um, with with ch- with children, you you're only given a limited number of hours to shoot with them by law, like you said. So you have to work with the line producer and the AD to schedule it so in such a way so that you get you shoot all of your scenes with your children, your child actors, in a bunch. In other words, you try to get them, you try to consolidate all those scenes in a given day so that you don't um, run out of time. Because really, literally, the plug will be pulled. You just can't. You can't work them. So for some guy who kills people, it was just a matter of scheduling. It was like let's let's shoot out all of Ariel's stuff, you know, in this block of time, and then she gets sent home as she rightfully should, and then we continue shooting with Barry Boswick or Karen Black, Kevin, till we you know till the day is done. Um, and sometimes it's like a it's like a puzzle. You know, and and when you're when you're doing that, you're trying to figure out, okay, who do I need? Who's in the scene with Ariel? Uh, who, which actor? You know, sometimes an actor. It, it worked actually. The adults are usually the ones that get sort of tossed around because, you know, in order to get a scene with Ariel and Karen Black, Karen Black may not work again. Maybe she'll work in the morning when Ariel's scheduled to be there, uh, but then she doesn't work again until you know eight o'clock at night or something, and so. So to, to accommodate the child actor, adult actors will usually, their schedule will be moved around. So a lot of it's this kind of puzzle, you know, this kind of puzzle-solving thing. But, um, you know, it's just, you don't, you just you just need to get them done. You know, you need to, you need them get, to get them done sooner. So unfortunately, I'm always working under the gun anyway on a clock. And I, I never seem to have the luxury of like, oh, there's just acres of time. So working with, with very specific time parameters is something I got used to. So I'm not, I'm never too pressured about it. Um, but yeah, it's, just, it's always a consideration. Well, very cool. And, and, and you helped, you know, answer, uh, both those questions and I really appreciate it. And, and as a reminder, we'll, we'll be talking with Jack more about directing, uh, actors. So, um, well, let's, let's, uh, uh, again, if you have questions, it, you can always ask them in the chat room. We'll try and answer them on the air. Uh, I hope that when it comes to asking questions that they would be more or less topic-specific. If they are not topic-specific, I will still try to ask them. I just I just want you to know, you know, time permitting. Um, you also can email me questions in advance for my guests through the website at the contact page. That's so, you know, click on the contact page, it'll bring up an email, and you can just type your question in and send it off for future shows. And that way I can always, you know, provide those to my guests, hopefully, um, in advance. And uh, John says, thanks, Jack, for answering his oh, question. Oh, thank you, John. Good question. And, uh, and more people are showing up in the chat room, and that's fantastic. And, again, keep inviting people and keep spreading and sharing these interviews. Jack, so let's turn our attention back because we were talking about storyboarding and, yep. and filling the frame and motivated camera movement and lens choices and, and camera placement and angles, you know, for whose story it is and where you tell it. We talked about coverage. I mean, we've talked about so many things. Yeah. And, uh, and yet we haven't exhausted them all. So no, <laughs> we're going to go back just to – go ahead, sorry. No, no, you go ahead. That's right. No, we haven't. We haven't I was going to say, we're just going to go back and revisit storyboarding here for okay. a little bit, um, you know, because I want to get I want to get the idea 
um, of, of how you storyboard. I mean, some people think you know they're going to do like this graphic novel, um, and some people do, and other people don't, and some are you know kind of afraid of storyboarding. Uh, but how do you use it, and, and how do you use it to create your shot list or to to demonstrate your camera moves if if you do that, or, or yeah. what you do? Because um, you mentioned, I think, in our very first summit, uh, when we when we started talking about, and I could be wrong, maybe it was the second one about how when you read the script, you, you know, these ideas started to come, and you just kind of storyboarded them, and then yeah. you, you took your storyboard into when you met Ryan, the producer. So, um, yeah, uh, that's please, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. The, the, yeah, I can totally elaborate on that. The um, yeah, I, I think you brought up a good point, which is that you know most people's for, most people's experience with storyboards, young filmmakers when they first see what learn what storyboards are, they're either in film school or they see a DVD extra where storyboards are included on the DVD, um, and they're all like you said, they all look like graphic novels. Uh, they all look like comic books. I mean, they're professionally drawn storyboards, and I've used those guys before. Um, but the thing to bear in mind, and, and I, but I rarely use those guys unless it's asked for by um, by the studio. For example, I don't think in reality I don't think they're necessary. I don't think that kind of polish is necessary for storyboards. I think storyboards first and foremost are for the director to kind of just start to just keep track of how you see the movie. So. Anything that you scribble down, and what I do is I, I mentioned this before, but I don't even keep a separate, oftentimes I don't even keep a separate notebook. I just print the script, you know, and if you're green, print on both sides, obviously, but print the script. What I do is I just draw these little pictures in the margins where they relate to what's written. In other words, it'll be a line of dialogue or it'll be a bit of description, and right next to it, you know, I'll draw, draw a tiny, you know, what they call thumbnail sketch, uh, of the image that pops into my head. And that's really what it is. And if you, maybe, you know, a director will read a script before he shoots it a number of times usually. So maybe in the first pass of reading the script, maybe only four or five images come into my mind. And I'll just scribble them down and they don't look pretty at all. They're just there. They're enough to, it's like when you're in school and you're writing notes, you know, like, or, you know, somebody, I always remember somebody said, can I see your notes? And I, my first thing I would say, you know, for like algebra or whatever, and I'd say, uh, well, you're never gonna you're not gonna understand them because they're written in your own code. You know that's for that's for you to understand, and that's really what the storyboard should be. It should just be like a uh, a trigger to remind you of what the shot is that you had in your mind. It doesn't need to be doesn't look, have to look like Frank Miller or something. That's not the point of it. In fact, recently I found an old uh, a book of mine uh, that had Irving Irvin Kirshner's who directed the Empire Strikes Back and a number of other movies, but it was it was a book on the Empire Strikes Back, and it had his original storyboards for the Luke Skywalker Darth Vader climactic lightsaber battle. And uh -huh. you look at his storyboards, and they are like you know they are like like a two year old you know like they are barely understandable, and yet <clears throat> when you look at it, you can still make out this is a close up of Darth Vader, and this is the this is a two shot you know, and this is you can still make out <clears throat> the compositional elements where these where these actors are in the frame. And in a lot of cases there's a notation about camera pans or what lens is a twenty five millimeter lens, you know. So you don't necessarily have to even draw in perspective. All you have to do is draw something that reminds you of what you want to do. And then you can make little notes even under the, the actual box that say 
you know, camera dollies, wide-angle lens, long lens, you know, handheld, whatever you want to do to keep this information, get this information down. And then, you know, later down the road, when you have to show this information, communicate this information to your director of photography, if the storyboard is so scribbly that you, he doesn't understand it, or if after showing him your scribble and describing it, he still doesn't get it, then it may behoove you to, okay, for, usually this isn't the case. I mean, as a, a DP, a cinematographer, will look at your scribble, you'll talk about all these things that I've been talking about, and they'll go, okay, I see it, and um, I get it. I know what you want to do. Uh, then, if if it's still you know confusing, then you can try to draw something a little a, a little cleaner rendering of that of that scribble, uh, or in, you know if you have to um, hire somebody or bring a friend in who's a better illustrator than you to draw so that people can see. But I do feel that there's this over reliance on this sort of artistic looking storyboard, and I don't think it's necessary. In fact, I think it's counterproductive because, um, as I may have said earlier, Michael Chapman, who was the cinematographer on Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and Scorsese's collaborator in the early days, said storyboards should not be artistic. They should not be because they're just the thing that. They're just the germ of what you're actually going to do on the set, you know. In other words, they—they're—that's the—that's the idea that you're going to build upon. I mean, maybe you do it exactly as you did it, but oftentimes you'll find something that you can even add to enhance it. It's like if it's if it's pre-visualized to the point where like everything is there on the page, everything is there in the frame. It's almost like a drag to go ahead and shoot it. Then it just becomes about like. It's like it's like building a model. You know, you're just putting attaching part A to part B. It doesn't have the same sort of um, exciting quality as when you have something that's in its larval stage, but then you then you kind of then you kind of birth it when you're there on the set. So I I prefer my storyboards to be rough, and I would encourage anybody, and particularly for anybody who's intimidated by their own <clears throat> drawing skills, you know. Just know that you're in great company because Martin Scorsese's drawings look like you know a five-year-old drew them, but they're very clear. You know, they're very clear. Um, so, anyway, that's that's my thought on it. I think it's 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 really easy to screw them down the margins. You know, which is what I do. How do you use them? Because I mean, people want to know how do you use them to create your shot list, and, and do they? Because in, in, I mean, first off, I can't draw, so I mean, everything yeah. I I do looks like you know. Uh, Pencil figures, anyway. But but when you do them, um, uh, do you put in your your camera moves, of whether it's a dolly shot or crane shot? And 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 I know this is you know we're trying to describe an image, but uh, how do you, how do you what kind of information do you generally put in so that the not only you but anybody else who might look at it can understand, or or at least when you when you speak about it, they can understand what yeah. it is that you uh, are pre visualizing. Right. Well, I mean, you know, basically, once you have all your, once you have your storyboards, then you can just go down. Basically, and I number them. You know, I'll number them. You know, this is shot one, shot two, storyboard one, storyboard two. It's just, and then I'll base my shot list. You know, I'll, basically, your shot list is just the descriptive part of that. You know, it's just, it's just basically the storyboard without the picture. So your shot list is just the description. You know, um, wide two shot low angle, if you know the lens you want to use, 18 millimeter lens, um, camera dollies in, you know, 
to a tighter two. You know, you basically scribble down this. This is that's how you make your shot list. But like when you're doing, um, when you're doing the actual drawing, when you're making the actual drawings, um, the point is is that you you should put something into your uh, should put something indicator into your actual drawing that communicates something like a dolly or a pan. So for example, a dolly. Um, a dolly move. Say it's a it's a move from like a medium shot of a guy that dollies into a close up of the same guy. So what I'll do is I'll draw the medium shot in the storyboard frame, and then what I'll do is I'll draw a tighter, I'll draw a rectangle around just his head that'll show the progression. In other words, if you can imagine that you're looking at the storyboard and you see a medium shot, which is like he's cut off at the chest, right? And then I'll draw another frame around his head that shows where the frame is going to go. And then I'll draw a fat arrow that's basically pointing in the direction of where the camera is going, basically toward this guy's head. And the fat arrow is usually the indicator for a dolly move. So in that, ver- in that one little frame, you can see, oh, that's very clear. Shot starts here. The arrow shows me that the camera is going to move. And then the frame around his head shows where the for the frame ends. Sometimes people will draw, you know, eat the progression. Then three, you know, we'll we'll draw a separate storyboard of, of the close up, you know, and and show that you know, and literally write, you know, shot continues, resolves here, or ends in close up. I mean, there's no hard and fast rules. It's just, you know, the the only thing I found out, and I, I took this from professional storyboards, was that a fat arrow really communicated like the movement of the camera. Uh, as as in um, a pan, you know, a left to right arrow showing that some that the camera pans or tracks, um, and then a thin arrow, literally like a little stick arrow, is what I use to show act, actor movement. You know, if they turn their head or if they pick something up. If I, so that's really what I did was I used fat arrows to to, to indicate camera movement and little thin arrows to indicate what the actors because they're obviously not they're not animatics they're still you know it's a still image so you're trying to you're trying to show or at least remember, you know, what the actor is doing in the shot and what the camera is doing in the shot. And if if it's not clear, you, you write it I write it down underneath. You know, I write I write you know I write it down in very broken, you know, simple English, you know, camera dollies L to R, left to right, you know, um, wide angle, you know, just just the notes, like I said, just the school notes to remind you, you know. Uh, of what you're doing, and then you just make your list from there. You just go back over your storyboards, and you just you know, you just write it down, you know, on a notepad, you know, shot one, and you just write the same information, um, you know. Or sometimes what you can do is you can then you know sometimes I'll just cut out the act or Xerox those storyboards and and paste them, you know, um, so I don't have to redraw them. Paste them next to my shot list, so that there's a you know. A correlated, you know, a correlating image to to the sh- to the shot list description. You know, there's all these whatever makes sense to you. It's like no one ever taught you in school like how to keep notes for your you know your algebra class. You just sort of did it, and whatever made logical sense, which was going to help you remember, is is the way to do it. So don't be too intimidated about the there's a, that there's this pro way to do it at all is what's important. Oh, very very cool. Um, and if you got any questions regarding that, feel free to ask Jack. Uh, Jack, um, 
when you're when you're creating these, well, let, let's move forward here. Let, let me sure. just say, because um, um, I think I think this is really valuable information. Um, do you, uh, you know, you said about uh, about it being a trap. I guess the you know if if you're too detailed or you know it's too too much. I mean, then people try and get overwhelmed. Um, I. I mean, you tend to still think of the storyboard as a guide, not as it's locked in stone. I mean, if, what what happens if you encounter something, you know, on the set that, or you know, in in the actual situation that that, or a new idea comes to you? I mean, you, yeah. you're free to just abandon and move in a different direction, or uh, how do you, how do you approach the how do you approach it then? I think that um, yeah, it's a really good question. I think that. You know, we were talking just before the show. It, things always tend to go wrong right before you know you, you you're about to shoot or do anything. You know, it's like a technical things have they happen. There's snafus, locations change. I've you know been many times when I've showed up and you know the location that I planned to shoot that is in my mind that I storyboarded is no longer my location. Now I've got to change it completely. I think the important thing to note is that if you do this preparation, if you do these storyboards. Uh, then, when these things inevitably do happen, these 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 obstacles are thrown, these changes occur. Um, your mind reacts differently than if you hadn't done the work. In other words, your mind is sort of uh, is, has been exercised to uh, more readily find a solution to adapt. I guess is the right word than if you just sort of showed up on the day and just decided to wing it. Um, which I obviously always, you know, say is not not the way to do it. Um, so it's this weird thing that happens where, if you even if you prepared a shot, you know exact and, and even if and, and it'll happen too. You prepare a shot with a very specific maybe with a jib or something that you know you were going to get, uh, and then on the day they're like, well, we couldn't get the jib because you know we screwed up. It's, we got the wrong day or we didn't have the money or whatever, now you're just going to have to do it somewhere else. The fact that you conceived the shot at all and thought so carefully about what it was going to look like will enable you to say, okay, well, look, maybe we can just go up on this ladder uh, or get on top of the van and, you know, on a hi-hat and sandbags and try something. You know, you'll, your mind will, will, will think more creatively and come up with a more creative solution. Um, I, I think that that's, that's one of the things that happens. Um, Rex, you have to remind me again. But what was the gist of the question, though? If, uh, <laughs> if well, you know, it should should unforeseeable is you know. Uh, oh well, you know, yeah, well, uh, you know, occurrences. Yeah, that's okay too. I think that's the other good thing, right? Exactly. I think that again, following this track that um, that the storyboard isn't the exact, you know, isn't always because look, you're gonna you know be, uh, because you don't draw like you know you don't draw. Perfectly, unless even you know you can't draw exactly how a lens sees something. Just by nature of the interpretation of going from scribble to setting up a shot, things are going to change. The composition may be slightly different, or the the, the size of the person's head in the frame may be slightly bigger or slightly smaller than what you drew. That's going to happen anyway. Um, I think that you want to build on what you've done. Let me put it this way, like, uh, and this is, you'll see how it's all interconnected. When I was doing one of my early films, when I was doing, working on this film, The Big Empty, which I considered one of my, you know, my, I still consider my most, my first serious movie, really serious movie, um, serious piece of filmmaking, 
Uh, and it was the first time I was really rehearsing with actors. And I didn't have a lot of experience with rehearsing, and I was worried I was doing it wrong. I had it in my mind that if I found something, if we found something brilliant in rehearsal, that I would lock it down. In other words, I would freeze it at that moment in my mind and say, okay, that's the best the scene can be. That's exactly what I want to reproduce on the set. And I, I would see the, you know, however long it took the actors got to a certain place, I was like, hey, that's it, you know. So I would, I would burn that into my memory. Is that's what I want to get, you know, when the cameras are rolling. And what would happen is, this was a very interesting learning experience for me, is that on set I would be watching, you know, we'd be shooting and I'd be watching these takes now go down of the stuff we rehearsed, and I would be, I wouldn't be happy unless I saw exactly what I had seen in rehearsal replicated because I was waiting for this thing that I had locked in my brain to be the thing that I needed to get on film because I knew how good it was. But what I was happening was I was missing the evolution of the scene. In other words, what happens is, is that whatever you do, whether it's storyboarding or rehearsing with actors, it's, it, what you, when you get to the set, it's going to build from that. It's going to naturally evolve. And what I was doing was I was looking for this earlier stage, which I thought was great, but I was missing even greater stuff because I was so worried about locking, getting it exactly as I had tried to set it down. So the same thing works with storyboarding, is that if you get too sort of fascistic about, like, this is exactly, and not a, I think there's a risk of, of missing something amazing or beautiful that's going to happen uh, as a result of just getting out there and setting it up. Something's going to... So always remember that 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 what you the work you've done enables it to get better, um, and you just have to be. All good directors are just observers of what is what's going on and taking advantage of what happens. So, if you keep an open mind, be prepared, but keep an open mind, you'll see that um, things will develop naturally from from the preparation of the homework that you've done, and then you go, yeah, that's that's even better. Let's add that to this shot. Maybe maybe there's a little bit of a of a camera move that wasn't there that you planned, but because of the way somebody moved based on how you blocked them to the frame that you had drawn in your on your desk, you know, the night before, that all of a sudden this it opened up this other possibility. But you see, you would never get to that extra bit of you know frosting, you know, if you didn't do the initial work. I mean, I think that's really the the lesson is that do the initial work and then it's like a seed that will like grow. Um, but I can't tell you how many people just like don't want to do that. Like, ah, I'll just do it on the day. I'll make it up. And you're doing yourself a disservice because that means that what goes to film is just the first is the seed, not what is not what is bloomed from that. So the, the the preparation is the seed. You know, the the work on the day should be the blossom. You know, it's a really cheesy bad metaphor, but that's that's <laughs> like. That's sort like of, it. you know, uh, that's sort of like how it works for me, at least. I, I, I'm going to ask you a question and a comment when we come back. We're going to take a short break right now to identify that you are listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, and the official web address is rexsikes. dot com. And of course, we appreciate your comments and support about blogs and articles and these conversations. So do please feel free to email me through the website and ask questions of my guests and upcoming guests in the future um, by sending them in email. And please do leave comments. Uh, 
both during and after the show. Uh, you got a place right there at Blog Talk Radio where you can do that. Once the player is closed, you can leave a comment post-show. Do tweet about the shows live and uh, and then before and during. Always, I always say, hey, see how many people we can get in the chat room and see how great a, a, a review you can give us on, on, on the podcast, too, because all of that goes to extend our reach and to, to make these filmmaker conversations, discussions available to other filmmakers worldwide. And I so appreciate it when you do, and I'm glad that you're here. Uh, my upcoming guests, let me just tell you a little bit about my upcoming guests tomorrow, Joke and Biagio. They produce Screen Queens and a new show coming up, uh, Dying to Do Letterman, the pilot. We're going to talk to them. Then Drew Rosas is the director of a new film called Billy Club. It starts uh, shooting uh, in my area, actually, in the, about the next two weeks, uh, right after Labor Day, and we're going to talk with him. And, uh, and Jack is going to come back. We're going to let you know the days that Jack is coming back, and we're going to continue these discussions. We've got Gary Marsh, the uh, founder of uh, uh, the uh, Breakdown Services, which is a service that uh, started in the 70s, available to all motion picture uh, producers and directors and casting people uh, worldwide. And uh, Paul Batista's entertainment attorney. We're going to talk about the different legal sides and so many more guests, so be sure to stay tuned to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, and thanks for all your support, and uh, continue to uh, spread the word. Okay, back with Jack. Um, hey, that's not a bad name for a show. Um, <laughs> back with Jack. Uh, so, Jack, I, I have a question, and it's based on the discussion, you know, and kind of on like the Hitchcock thing, which, yeah. you know, Hitchcock is, you know, revered, and I mean, I like it. I watched The Birds the other day, and I just, I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I I, I wasn't as impressed as I used to be with it. I got to say, and it, that mm-hmm. may be me, um, but that's notwithstanding his talent. I love I love Hitchcock, um, but uh, you know it's 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 reported that he did such detailed storyboards that uh, he didn't even need to show up on the set. They could just follow his detail and make his movie, um, which to me is is both kind of a, a, a plus and a huge minus. Mm-hmm. Because technically, if you didn't show up in the set, you know, or if you if you followed uh, if you followed the recipe that strictly, while you might come up with good work, uh, how do you know you didn't wouldn't have come up with more brilliant work if you were right there watching it and and taking advantage of what um, incidents occur on the set that uh, you know you might never know. And David Lynch is known for, for example, uh, you know, something happens, he might write incorporate it into the story. Uh, in a way that doesn't even make sense. I mean, my favorite television is Twin Peaks, and one of yeah. the reported scenes is the uh, the uh, buck head fell off the wall, and they stuck it on a table in the room, and and decided to incorporate it into the story. So in the middle of the scene, they walk in, and here's this you know um, large deer head on the table, and uh, one of the actors says to the other actors, "It fell off," and they go on without. You know, right, I mean, right, right, you know, right, exactly. And, or the Bob, or the you know the the the, the oh yeah, famous right. terrifying Bob. You know, image was you know reportedly, you know, one of the crew just hiding behind the bed for fear of being in the shot, and you know right. that became one of the most horrifying images. And that's a perfect example of taking up taking advantage of what you see as a director and saying this is even better than I imagined. Let's do this, you know. Right. Uh, so yeah, 
But anyway, continue. Yes. So the um, well, I was I was just saying I like your approach to storyboarding because you know I mean there there do seem to be I, I I have worked with directors when I'm producing or I'm first dating and they go this is the shot list and you go but this isn't going to work and they go but this is the shot list it's kind of like they can't see their way around uh, improvising right. at the moment as need be and and I I think being flexible in use, in utilizing you know a great uh, well or just utilizing uh, great mental agility is is crucial. Uh, in many ways, in, in you know, and, and you don't, you know, what what happens on the set when when something isn't going to work and you you can't take you know hours to to redesign and redecide. Yeah, well, I think this 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 is it's funny you mentioned Hitchcock <clears throat> because I think it all leads in this to decide to this idea of shooting to cut, which is yes. you know how I think really all all great directors work, and it certainly is the way to solve a lot of these issues that you're you're talking about. I mean if if you if you understand editing and if you become a student and I'm still a lifelong student of editing, I still think it's 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 the coolest, one of the coolest, you know, most most magical aspects of the whole medium is just how editing works and how how powerful it is. If you understand you know, how shots go together and and what you really need um, not not what you want, you know, but what you really need to communicate a moment that can save you. I mean, I did what everybody does when I was first making my shot list and storyboards: is that you you write down, and it's natural. You're going to write down everything that you want. It's like a Christmas list. This is Santa. This is what I want. You write every cool thing you can think of, you know, and it's and that's great too. I think you should do that. I think you should write down everything that you see in your mind everything that you think would be interesting and exciting to, to film, uh, every everything, everything, write it all down. Um, but just like a Christmas list, you never get everything. Um, usually, you know, or, you know, somebody where your parent will say, you can have those, you can have one of these things or two of these things or whatever. Um, and filmmaking is like that. You know, there's no, there's usually not a lot of, there's not enough time to get it all. You know, there's just simply not enough time to get it all. And so the only way to reduce that list to something that's manageable is to understand what what will make the sequence work in the least number of shots is sort of the essence of it. In other words, you can if you understand editing, you'll know that this shot next to this shot communicates this idea. But if you're just looking at a list of a lot of different shots and someone says like you said, well we we can't we can't get all this and you don't know what shots will of that list will do, or what are the best shots? What are the essential shots, say, of these 25? And this happens. I do this a lot with my students. I'll say, you know, you've got 25 shots here on your list. You can have 10 to, to shoot your scene, any 10, you know, but you've got to pick those 10 shots, you know, because that's the time you have to get it done. If, if, if you can think about it in those terms, um, you start your mind starts to focus and you go okay wait a minute now what are the 10 best shots what are the what are the what are the what are the shots that are really going to sell this scene and you only you only start to do that you only start to think that way by observing watching movies from, with an editor's eye and seeing what worked you know what worked in any given movie and you know hitchcock was the you know was the prime example of somebody who shot the cut you know, and there are many stories as to mostly it's a control thing. You know, if you design a movie to go together a certain way, um, and you don't overcover it, 
That is, you don't shoot it from a lot of different angles and then try to decide later what you're going to use. You're not giving anybody else an option of how the scene is going to go together. You're, it's going to go together one way. You know, um, and so a producer or a, st- or a studio can't come in and just decide to recut your movie how they see the movie. That's one of the reasons why thinking as an editor will preserve your vision as a director because, you know, you'll no one can it won't make any sense if they put it together. You know, if you if you if you if you don't overcover it. So that's what Hitchcock did, and he he was such a technician. You know, he had been in the business for so many years and had done so many jobs and understood the lenses and understood the camera so well that you know, he didn't have, they said he didn't even have to look through the lens he knew just by looking over and seeing what lens was on the camera which he told the cameraman what lens to put on and he told them you know where the where the dolly was going to start and where it was going to end and the height of the camera he told them everything and he showed them the storyboard and then he just knew based on them following his his instruction exactly what it was going to look like as he had been doing it for so long so i do think you know that that what you said is true. That Hitchcock often said, I was sort of bored by the time we got on set because it was so worked out. Um, it's funny you mentioned The Birds because I think, you know, The Birds, even though it was a huge hit for him, you know, is not one that is one of my personal favorites just because it's, it's more of a technical exercise. Uh, it's a bit of a cold movie, you know, whereas, you know, so many of his films, Rear Window, Vertigo, Notorious, all right. have this incredible... Um, humanity to them, you know, and I think that was re- and humor, you know, and that's and and just such strong character. Whereas the birds is essentially a monster movie, you know, and right. and so that was the that's the greatest thing about Hitchcock is that he married this amazing um, technique with um, real humor and and character, and you just don't rarely see that those two things together. Usually technicians. You know, technical filmmakers, a la Michael Bay, um, are are not known. You know, their movies are, are are pretty to look at, but they don't really. There's not much meat on the bone, so to speak. And that was the great thing about Hitchcock. He was a master filmmaker who happened to be interested in 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 people as well as you know thrills and and suspense and and everything else. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I. I think you want to be the type of director that prepares, but when you get to the set, it it should be a discovery process, ideally. You know, it should be the kind of thing where you, not that you find the movie while you're, while you're on the day, but you find aspects of it that you didn't know about. Uh, and you capture those and you take advantage of those. That's really the most exciting part about directing uh, itself, is on on the set is those moments where you actually seem to capture something because the rest of it's just a grind. The rest of it's just a, you're, it's just nerves. You know, you're just you're it's just so many obstacles and so many you're constantly fighting the clock. Um, so it's not it's not a relaxed necessarily relaxing creative time. It's really about just sort of you know mining you know as they, I said before it's like mining the ore and then when you make the jewelry in the editing room. It's it's a laborious. So the joys of directing on set come from noticing and capturing those those moments. An actor does something, you know, that you didn't expect, or or something happens, like you said in Twin Peaks, you know, something 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 happens accidentally, and you just seize on that and see how that that would you know improve the scene. Um, I think those that's what makes it worthwhile. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's. 
you know, at least that's my take on it. Well, I, I think it's interesting in in that um, in talking about Hitchcock that that through the years and his study of film and, and his study of people, because what you pointed out, I mean, his films typically are about people and, and they are about how they respond in different situations and and the psychology behind it and how that creates suspense or terror in their minds and how they you know handle those things and you know and what happens and. Um, and and he certainly was a master, but he had honed it by doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And um, and one of the uh, questions that, uh, or um, not, I guess not a question, I guess I'm going to make a statement, but but one of the things about, about uh, his approach was because he was so pre-prepared that he said it was sometimes boring. There are those other directors who show up with almost no preparation. They just kind of wing it uh, and uh, and get whatever they get. And then there are those who have strike a balance. They they find through doing it um, again and again and again that there's a certain amount of preparation they need to do, and and they don't want to be over prepared. There's a certain amount of you know um, uh, winging it that they they want to have room for. So. Um, it's, I guess how do you, I guess the question becomes is how do you find how do you strike that balance? What you, are, are there points that you go I absolutely need to have this, and I and you know in 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 my toolbox before I begin so that I'm 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 assured and I'm comfortable and I'm confident things are going to move forward and and in having done it enough there are other things that maybe you yeah you, yeah yeah that's a good question I, I think I think yes I think that. In the beginning, uh, when I was first making films, I would storyboard, uh, you know, everything. You know, I would storyboard the whole movie. It didn't matter whether it was a simple close-up or an over-the-shoulder shot. I would storyboard it. I think that's a good idea because if you, the the one, cor- one correlation or one um, comparison to two uh, comic book or graphic art, you know, graphic graphic novels, which is good, is that you can see this, you know, a graphic novel or a comic book unfolds one panel at a time and your eye just tracks. You go from one panel to the next panel to the next. And, and in some ways that is similar to watching a, a movie shot by shot. I mean, and if a, if a graphic novel or comic book is, is um, uh, if, you're, if you kind of disappear into it, if it's good, then you, you're never aware of the fact. You're never telling yourself. Your mind's not going, I'm looking at a panel, I'm looking at a panel, I'm looking at it. It's just working. Right, so when you storyboard and you, if you storyboard everything, um, then you can just look over it. You're, you can track your eye, and you can see this cuts to this, cuts to this, cuts to this, cuts to this, and you see start to see your whole movie. Now, as as and that will help you when you start to say when you're looking at these shots and go, oh shit, I've got to cut four of these. If you x out, you can see if you x out. Now, if you look at the remaining shots, you can see if they're going to cut together. You know, you can start to see on paper, does it work? You know, what can I get away with? Can I get away with losing this over the shoulder? Yeah, because this close-up cuts to this two-shot. Maybe I had it over the shoulder in between. Yeah, I don't need it. See, it works. It works. So, but you can see it, you know. Um, now, as I, as I got older and started to make more movies, I realized that I didn't necessarily need to storyboard everything anymore because I know what a close-up with this lens looks like. I could just simply write it down on my shot list close up of, of, of this actor or 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 medium shot develops and do a close up, you know, dolly and, you know, 
32 millimeter lens. I would write it. Down. I wouldn't. I didn't need to storyboard everything because it was. It's like language. It's like at a certain point, I was fluent enough so that I didn't need to remind myself what 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 it looked like anymore. What what happens is is usually where storyboards become more important. Um, even more important for me as a as a uh, our technical our our action scenes or things like that that need to be where there really isn't much a lot of um, variation, particularly in a low budget. Like for example, in Some Guy Who Kills People, there are a couple of murder scenes that um, because we were working on a very low budget because there wasn't so much time, it was even you know it was it was as important as ever to storyboard how th- these murders were going to um, occur on screen shot by shot um, because I knew that with um, special makeup effects, when you're dealing with things like that, with splatter effects and and blood, and in, in the case of some guy who kills people, like there's a decapitation scene um, where we actually used, you know, the old school decapitation effect, which was using a dummy and using a, uh, a fake torso with an air, compressed air ram, through the neck that was filled with gore that would blow, you know, that would basically blow a dummy head off its shoulders with blood splash. No CGI was just, you know, on done on set. That whenever you do anything like that, um, it takes a lot of time. You know, if you've ever set up any even a minor uh, special makeup effects gag, you know, where blood's supposed to spurt out or something, you realize how many takes it, it takes. And suddenly you're there and your whole mind is gone. So those were scenes where I, you know, very carefully, you know, drew out the shots that I knew would communicate um, that effect, that that moment of this guy getting his head cut off by a machete. And I, I worked it out so that, and I gave myself a break. I said I would, let me, I'll give myself, you know, four, maybe four shots here, four setups to communicate this head coming off gag. Um, what do I need? Well, I need the moment of the guy, you know, swinging the machete at the guy. Um, definitely want that. I want the point of view. I basically wanted the victim's point of view of this blade coming at him. So I, that was one shot that I drew. Then I realized, okay, so what follows? Well, he's swinging right at our guy. So that means the next moment should be the moment of impact. So then I figured out what shot that should be for the moment of the head actually separating from the body. And that had in part to do with the fact that, you know, we were low budget and the dummy head was not, you know, it was not a life cast of the actor. It was just a, you know, a standard dummy head. So I couldn't shoot that from the front as you might do in another movie. I realized that I had to shoot it from the back because I couldn't see, I didn't want to read the audience to read that the dummy head's face was not that of the actors. Um, So knowing that I had to do that, you know, forced me into deciding, okay, what's the, how, is, how am I going to frame the shot that precedes it? How am I going to shoot, frame the shot that follows? And the shot that, that followed that was the shot of the head, you know, kind of bouncing off the hood of the victim's car. Um, anyway, the, but these were things that I drew ahead of time, knowing that they were going to be, you know, they were going to take a long time, and I would much rather have fewer shots that I could finesse with multiple takes and get done in, in the time frame than, you know, maybe 10 shots that you know, I'd be there all night and I'd never get it all, you know. And that's one of the real dangers of trying to shoot everything that you lay down originally is that you may shoot a chunk of it, but if you run out of time, 
you have like half a scene. In other words, the scene doesn't make sense. So you, you know, it's incomplete. So it's better to, to try to think in a, a reductionist sort of way, I think, but do the best, you know, do the, come up with the best possible four shots as opposed to, you know, ten, which you're not going to get. Um, uh, so, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please finish. No, so the that's that's really what I and I think that so I think when it comes to stunts or special effects or things like that where you're going to involve a lot more people than just you and the cameraman, uh, that's when storyboarding can be a little more, a little less scribbly, and um, and, and and you can afford to do a little more polish. And I would agree with that for things like that because you know um, it's that's the complicated stuff. But uh, in general, you know. I think in general it's good in the beginning to try to to try to draw scribble out as much as you possibly can. It'll help you. It'll help you when you get into trouble. The um, when, when I grew up in film, uh, few people, and Hitchcock was still making movies, but I mean, few people uh, that I knew or that fil- few films that I worked on ever did any storyboards. They did do exactly what you said. If if they were doing a complicated action sequence or a car chase or something like that, then they would try and sketch it out. But it was it was really reserved for special sequences within the film rather than doing the entire film. So I suspect that just as as you know, 30 years later, that it's just become a more popular. Uh, part of filmmaking classes that I took, and I didn't graduate film school, I didn't go to film school, but the classes I did take in filmmaking and the workshops I took in in Hollywood, uh, there was never one that included storyboarding that I was Mm -hmm. in uh, for directing or producing, which it may, and and other people my age and or who were there at the same time may have been heavily immersed in storyboarding, but I was not, you know, I mean, it just just wasn't um, part of it. I wanted to say that it's a, it's a fascinating thing because I on a movie that I produced was part of a producing team uh, in the past when it came to uh, the kind of stunts and gags you're talking about. For example, if you're reaching out and you're 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 grabbing a doorknob to open the door and somebody cut off the hand in the movie, you know you, what's in, what's amazing is that the uh, special effects makeup team may go ahead and slice the you know the prosthetic arm. And now you've got two pieces, you know, and then you, you know you're going you're to wed this with the real arm in the film and all this kind of stuff and where the hand is be. But even the angle at which the slice is made, um, you know, sometimes they just cut straight down. And if you were actually swinging a knife between a door and the the person, like you stepped out of the darkened shadow and you cut off their arm, um, the blade doesn't necessarily come down straight. So. And and where the person has to stand in order to do this are, are all things you kind of learn on the set. And I remember arguing uh, a couple of times in this movie that the that the special effects guy, who's also directed you know some of his own films and things like that, be the director for the special effects gags, mm-hmm. because the director didn't know what was coming, and did, you know and they hadn't they hadn't discussed it. I mean he could the the special effects guy would say here's what's going to happen. The director would kind of go yeah you know okay. And I just go, why don't you just let him direct it? You know, this is like a B unit. This is a, spe- you know, let him do it. He knows what he's doing. And of course, it didn't win me any favors or friends. But <laughs> they finally, they would finally say, and I didn't do it publicly. I mean, you know, I did it off, you know, sure. quietly, as you should, you know, discuss it off the second thing. Um, but argued for this guy to direct it, and because there were times when blood splatter and all sorts of things. I mean, he just had, they just had to let this guy be in complete control and tell the camera kind of where to be to capture it because the other 
effect when he did it, it, it worked out better, and they didn't have to keep reshooting the effect. Right. So, um, but if you know that, I mean, you know, you're the director, and you know how these things work, and you know these sets, and you can coordinate with these people, then, you know, you go ahead and you direct your own your own sequences and your own and and the gags. But uh, you know, I've been on films with boy, those become very complex things. Now, having said all that, your shooting to cut, you go, okay, I have this. And you said, well, I know I can forego the over-the-shoulder because i got the close-up. But how do you develop that? I mean, does that just come from the experience of doing it all the time? Or or how do you, how do you I mean, we're assuming that everybody already has some form of visual sense. We're not asking them yep. to completely, you know, re-engineer their brain. But but the idea of, of and the other things like cutting on movement or, or, or mm-hmm. jump cuts or, you know, what kind of cut you're going to use or where you're going to, where you're going to go out and where you're going to come in. You know, because um, I've been around a lot of directors saying, oh, yeah, I don't need that, or I need this, I know I have to have this. Yeah. Um, how do you develop that sensibility? If you're talking to a young director right now, what what kind of advice can you give them? And you know, and you said, well, I know what this lens does, so I know if I have that kind of lens. You know, I mean, there's there's all this stuff that kind of goes together. Yeah. Um, in creating, how do you, how do you do that? Well, I think it's you know, there's no. It's the old, old adage is true. I mean, there's no substitute for experience. And a lot of what I, a lot of my sort of um, philosophies or whatever, my approaches to this came out of, you know, doing it one way and realizing that it, that this wasn't practical. You know, this wasn't working. Or shooting a scene from a from a multitude of angles and getting into the editing room and realizing that, you know what, I shot six angles of this that I thought I absolutely needed and when I cut it together, and only after I cut it together, do I realize that, wow, the whole scene plays within these two, plays best within these two. So those moments of discovery that you make in the editing room, you, what I found in the editing room after shooting something um, would inform how I went back and shot the next thing. Uh, so sometimes, you know, you can, you know, in, until you do it, and, and again, it's, they're cliches, but until you, like, make the mistakes yourself you're not going to or make these choices and then realize that there may be better choices um you're not really going to uh fully be there i think you have to sort of do it and then make these discoveries yourself i do think that again there's no there's also no substitute for watching a lot of movies and beautifully constructed sequences by the great filmmakers and recognizing Okay, like how many shots are in this, you know, sequence? How many setups? Stop, you know, pause it, look at it. You know, are we cutting back to the same shot? After, you know, are we cutting back to the same shot, or are we? Is this is this framing slightly different? Is it the lens slightly different? I mean, pay attention to it and, and make notes for yourself whether or not it's having an impact, and that can, on you as a viewer and and as a filmmaker, is this working for you? And then you can you can go from there. You can make your own assessment and make your own notes about what you're going to do. But you have to kind of get out there and do it. And, I mean, again, you know, one of the things that drove me crazy was the fact that I had spent time, time with the actors, time with the crew, shooting stuff that I threw away. And I was like, wow, if I had only known, and I would only know because of what I this whole process. But if I had known then that I would only be using these two shots rather than these six, these four others that I was going to chuck out, 
think about all the time that I spent on those four shots that I didn't use that I could have been spent finessing just those two. I could have done five takes instead of two. I could have done another take to get the camera move on that one shot just a little bit better. So this is all goes into what I'm saying, shooting to cut. You know, you why spend all this time, you know, doing five takes and getting it perfect for and using up an actor, you know, using up their their you know their tiring them out right. and something that you're just gonna like go, you know, I, I like the other shot better. Like what a waste, what a waste of time on the day, and sort of what a shame, you know. So um, there are all kinds of reasons why to think editorially because um, it's practical and it's good for the actor and it preserves your vision so no one can fuck with it in the editing room. There are all kinds of reasons, but I think you do need to to shoot a lot and try a lot. And now, obviously, with you know any number of prosumer cameras that look so great, you can just you know you should work out and shoot a bunch of stuff. Shoot a, like we said earlier in an earlier session. You know, shoot shoot a scene uh, you know a, a bunch of different ways. And see when you get into the cutting room, you know, on your laptop, which you know is the cutting room, uh, what what's working for you, and then you can you'll you'll adjust from there, you know, you'll adjust from there, and then you'll get more confident, and then when you get out there, you'll know, okay, this is, and in a lot of ways, your shoot day will be a lot, you'll have a lot more fun on your shoot day because you won't be running around just following, you know, like being a slave to a list. Uh, that you made because you can't see where to cut or, or how it could go together any differently. You don't want to be a slave to your shot list. You want to be able. You want it to be a malleable thing. Um, so I learned more about directing, really, from cutting. You know that it's sort of like the other way around. You know, from editing, I learned how to be a better director. I learned what I needed. Well, I, I, that's great because I was going to say maybe we can construct an exercise. You know, my 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 children grab cameras and and especially my daughter. And every day she's making a video, editing it, and uploading it somewhere or doing oh, something cool. with it. You know, she I mean, she's very prolific and she loves to do it. And and nowadays, I mean, you know, I have a little Canon PowerShot camera that that you know with a sixteen, you know. Mm-hmm. memory card and you know I mean I can go out and shoot a lot of video you know and I give the kids that they have their own cameras and everything else but I mean even on something as simple as a little you know Canon PowerShot or any of the equivalent cameras you know you can go out and you can shoot anything and while it's not necessarily great footage um, but you can take it you can shoot from six different angles so you can shoot 360 degrees and then go okay what do I actually need to most yeah efficiently tell the story that has the most visual appeal and that, is, that it creates the greatest interest and gets the point across. You know, what are the fewest steps? What are the max steps? And you could you could do a little of this every day. You do a little of this every week. You you would fairly quickly then develop exact that sensibility that you're just now describing. Oh, for sure. Um, so yeah. I like that. I like yeah, that. You know, in yeah, I think you get totally. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that that's, you know, um, they say, you know, language, you know, the best way to learn a language is not like, you know, going to Spanish class in high school. <clears throat> you know, it's it's immersing yourself in a, in a situation where you have to speak it, you know. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's the same thing with filmmaking. I mean, you can... You can go out each time you, they tell you to make a movie in film school or whatever, you know, and that can your that can be your learning experience. So that can be the time that you speak and you start to develop, or you like you said, you can just go out at your own volition and shoot all the time. And the more you shoot, the better you become at the grammar. You know, the better you the better you speak. I mean, that's really what it is. It's 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 like equating, 
you know, filmmaking with, with, with grammar. Uh, it's just how eloquent you can be. It's not about, like, whether making the point, you know, anybody can make a point, you know, um, getting the information across. I mean, your grandmother with a camera can get the information across, you know. It's like, you know what you can... It's not about that. It's about how eloquently, how elegantly, even in a horror movie, can you are you communicating this stuff? And that only comes from from working out and doing it. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that's the way to do it. That's the way we become more fluent. Well, and and I mean, you can you can run out with your red camera or you know your Canon DXL7s and, and you know I, I don't want to go through a whole host of numbers that I want I wanted to massacre all the numbers anyway. <laughs> but uh, I get them wrong too. But. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, a friend and uh, and guest on movie beat Juliet Landau, who was Drusilla in the Buffy the Vampire and Angel series, uh, is also a director. Is a daughter of Martin Landau, mm-hmm. and she's been here. And, she, and one of the things she did was she directed the behind the scenes um, um, uh, uh, short movie of Gary Oldman directing uh, uh, a Jewish hip hop band. And yeah. what he did was he shot it all on cell phone, and so they had to come up with a you know they taped the cell phone to a, a broomstick, and, right, and they right. could lower it, make it like a crane, or they could get on cool. a skateboard. But it was all you know how can we how can we simulate what what we would do if we had really great equipment, but do it right. on a cell phone. And the reason I bring that up is simply that that using whatever you have available for you, you can. Uh, practice. You can get the experience that you need, and then when you do actually have the dollars to get the the right kind of equipment, make the kind of movies that you want to be making, you will have, you know, you will have have been practiced in this. I like what you said about making the elegant point. And um, one of the questions I was going to ask, I mean, getting your point across in the most elegant fashion, regardless of the genre, is do people do you find that the audience is visually tired of things? I mean, if you're always cutting back to the same master shot that, or you're cutting back to the same two shots or whatever that 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 as an editor and as a director you want to try and to change the angles or change the composition of the shot or or something to keep it uh, you know visually interesting i think um i think it depends on who's you know i think a two shot and a close up in the hands of somebody who is more fluent can be just as um can be just as exciting or even more um uh, impactful than um a lot of different a lot of different angles uh cut together very quickly um it depends on who's who's you know who's directing um i mean there's something to be said for um having a scene develop visually so you know understanding that i think you know i i think change for change's sake is a dangerous thing because sometimes you don't need to change sometimes if the camera is in the right place, is the right distance from the actor, it can hold forever, you know. Uh, like we were saying last time about Woody Allen, you know, some of his earlier films, you know, if you look at them, they're, they're cam- there's not a lot of cutting. Um, or John Huston, there's not a lot of shots, but the ones that are there hold, you know. So um, I don't think there's necessarily a golden... I think both are dangerous, you know. To, you don't want to get lazy and just do the least amount of setups because that's easier. You want to do the most strategic setups that you can uh, and be aware that, you know, um, you know, you look at a scene, I, I try to say this, you know, you look at a scene as like a piece of music, you know. Uh, a song usually goes somewhere, 
you know, it, it, it starts and then it builds and then there are courses and then it, you know, concludes. There's a shape to a song and there's a shape to a scene. And when you're coming up with shots, um, you should think about that, that you're sort of scoring, you know, you're scoring the piece visually. Um, so to be aware, just literally how close I am to this actor <clears throat> at the point at which they say this line, is am I too close? Is this is what they're saying fairly innocuous? So if they are, why am I like in an extreme close-up here? You know, maybe the camera should be farther away for this moment when they're talking about, you know, just small talk. But at the moment where they're talking about their dead mother, and I really want to see what's going on behind their eyes, maybe I need to be a little closer. You know, to to not just sort of hose it down randomly with a bunch of shots. Which is why I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, I feel like that all filmmakers should try to advance beyond coverage, beyond master close-up over the shoulder. Because I think that's just, that's not, that's unstrategic, if that's a word. That's, that's not, that's more of grandma just giving, me, giving you the information. That's not being elegant or eloquent. Um, so think about, like, simple things like shot size in relation to what's coming out of the actor's mouth. If you think about those things, then you can realize, oh, for this whole section, I really feel I should be on a tighter shot here. And I don't need the wide. I'm never going to go back to the wide shot here. Why, why would I? Why would I cut out to a two-shot, two people at a table when this woman is talking about her dead mother and she's talking for a page? Why do I need to run that scene three times at a master when I know I'm going to be on the close-up? I know that's where I want to be. That's where my eye wants to see this scene. That's how my eye wants to see this scene. If I was sitting in the audience, what would I want to be looking at at this moment? It sort of can be your guide to to how you start making your shot list. So it's an interesting question, though. I think too many. I think a lot of studio executives feel that 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 constantly changing an image and constantly keeps people alert and keeps people an audience from being bored. But being bored, not from not being bored, is different from being invested or immersed in a movie. And I would also wager that that can become exhaustive after a while. I think just cutting, 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 cutting ends ends up having a flat line plateau effect. And the most exciting, and you, how many of us have sit, sat there, you know, in a movie that's designed to be to blow you through the back of the theater, and then going and at the 20 minute mark, you're just tired. You're not excited. You're not, you know, you, no matter how many things blew up, you know, they've cut three million cuts you've seen and it's just like okay you know so it's not necessarily about volume or just um or just changing changing the angle it's about when you change the angle and what that angle is for each moment and and what i really appreciate about uh our conversation and and the points that you're making and and that we'll continue to make in in future shows but the uh is that it really, again, is about getting the performance and the story on the screen and not just about all the tools or the methods to get it there. You use these things in service of something else, which is the story and the performance. I know too many people who are just interested in having a unique shot, mm -hmm. and they don't really care what's in front of the camera. And it doesn't really matter how it's going to fit in because they think that somehow people will go, oh, well, that's like a Spielberg shot right there. That's, that's, isn't right. that incredible? Look at how that's constructed. When, in fact, if it just takes you out of the story, it doesn't serve the story, it doesn't enhance the performance. Um, we, we are almost out of time. We won't have time to service this next question, but I'm going to ask it now. And, and then when we come back, and we're going to let you know when, when Jack is back. Um, and tomorrow, probably, I'll let you know. But the... Uh, but the uh, question 
or the uh, discussion I'd like to have with you is is uh, recently I saw a rough cut of something, and of course it's a rough cut. And uh, and in another situation, I watched uh, one movie five times, and during both the rough cut that I watched recently and the and the movie, I would go, I'm not really clear what's going on. Um, something something's happening. And I don't really know what it is. And then I'd see the, the one that I watched five times. By the third or fourth one, I go, oh, oh, that's where that came in. That's why they did this. And then on the fifth time, I go, oh, okay, now this is all beginning to make sense. Now I see that you know, mm-hmm. here in the first 15 minutes, they said something that led to where they were in the next. And my point being is that, like a piece of music, well, well, there is some repetition in it, and it, it does travel somewhere. It is not all the same. And when it comes to, and you, and you made the point that it's not about just getting information there, you know, in, in this kind of consistent flow of information, it's it's which information do you enhance and which do you maybe diminish? Which is right. the most important thing, and how do you how do you emphasize that? What what angle do you use? What what shots are you you know what what lens are you using? You know, how are you getting this point across? Because not every moment of the movie is the same. I mean, you know, there are high moments and low moments, and those those are critical plot points that need to be. Um, captured by the audience so that they don't miss them. And and what I'm getting at is that the two movies that I've recently watched, it was like they just shot whatever was there, without making, uh, and you know, particular emphasis. So that's so right. You, yeah. You know, you would. Am I in? I can hear you. you there? Yeah. Oh, I heard some major. Yeah, I heard noise, something so. too. Yeah. Okay, so so that would be a question for the next time to come back on, you know, kind of how, you know, we're talking about making these moments and making this special and creating and getting the story up. So, um, and and I'd like to continue that and continue more about the, the special effects or whatever you want to talk about. Yeah, no, love um, to. I think that's a really great, that's a really great launching launching point for, you know, and, and it's, a, it's, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting uh, point, an important point, you know, is what do you emphasize? You know, what do you emphasize? Because if you don't, you know, if you don't do that, you know, you get what you're talking about, which is just sort of like, what am I looking at? Like, what what and am I, I looking at? And it's going to start when you're breaking down your script, you know, exactly. when you analyze, you know, and go, hey, you know, these are these moments that really need to be told, you know, and, and, and well and, and emphasized so that the audience, you know, can follow and, and move forward and, and have uh, the experience that you want them to, be, to experience. So um, I am so glad that uh, you are here, and I'm so glad that the people in the chat room are here and that the people are listening live and archived, those people who we never, ever get to meet. You know, um, John came in and said, hey, I've been lurking. I just wanted to say hi. And I'm like, well, hi. You know, this is cool because there are there are lots of people who lurk, and we never know who they are. Somebody will send an email or something. So, well, you know, I listened to this show the other day. And, of course, I don't know that because unless you're in the chat room when we're live, I don't know when you're listening or, or how you're listening or where, but you can listen anytime 24-7 to all of these shows because they are recorded live and they are stored at my website rexsykes.com and the interviews blog and you go there read about my guest and then click on the links there and listen to them anytime you can listen to them through the podcast at itunes but go ahead and listen to them and then do me a big favor since these are coming to you and we and we i'm sure you're finding value in them i hope we are but i hope you are but is is share them you know, go ahead and spread them around, post the links, put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, tell your friends, you know, go, you got to listen to these interviews, and also leave comments. After the player closes, go ahead, Blog Talk Radio, leave a comment right there, and uh, or on Facebook and or on Twitter, and as well, rate and review the podcast, because that extends the reach of both my guest and I 
to be able to share this wonderful information to uh, aspiring filmmakers and even seasoned filmmakers. So I appreciate that when you do that, and I thank you for listening today. Jack, you have been, as always, just a, a great person to talk with and, and fun to chat. I learned so much. I know everybody else does, and I really appreciate you being here. Um, you and I are going to talk in a couple minutes, and, and we'll let them know what the uh, what your and my upcoming schedule of, of shows are. Okay. Well, okay? It's, been, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Oh, you bet. And Jack is on Facebook. You can find Jack Perez in the chat room. We put up his uh, his link for that. And also Some Guy Who Kills People has a friends page on Facebook. So go ahead and like that and join in there. And uh, and uh, All right, Jack, have a great day. Thank you so much. And, Thank you, Rex. I'll uh, talk to you soon. All right, man. Bye-bye. Again, Mr. Jack Perez, and I want to, again, thank you all for listening in. Thank you for your questions in the chat room. and remind you that you can always send in questions uh, by email. And uh, and the goal of Movie Beat is to help you, you know, make your projects and to get them done and to, uh, to uh, do it faster, quicker, easier, and with less expense and to know exactly what you're doing and not having to reinvent the wheel. It's really a, a resource designed uh, for you uh, by discussing movie making with people who are actually doing it. Now, you can become a member of the Rex Sykes, I should always say that, but you can actually become a friend on the Rex Sykes Movie Beat Friends page. At Facebook, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Rex Sykes Movie BT, Rex Sykes Movie BT. If you're interested, you can follow Some Guy Who Kills at Twitter. That's Some Guy Who Kills. That's producer Ryan Levin. He's been uh, a guest on the show and will be back. Um, but that will keep you in touch with uh, with Ryan and with Jack. And everybody have a fabulous day. Make your movies, complete your projects. Until we meet the next time, that's a wrap.